Well, for most patients, a witch doctor is better, is at least as good and perhaps better than an exposure to Western medicine. There you have somebody who's very well trained at transmitting the most placebo effect. Perhaps there are other effects I don't know about too, but certainly a lot of it is the presentation with the the drums and the sweat baths and the whatever. And the, as we know, even with antidepressants, the placebo group does very well. You have about a 30% improvement with placebo and maybe a 40 to 45% improvement with active antidepressants. So you got to use that placebo. The placebo is the relationship and it's gotten a bad name. But if the relationship makes people feel so much better, use it. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 17. When I was doing my research for this podcast, I came across a book online that had been written by Mitchell Smolkin. But this book was not a book that I had written. The name of this book is called Understanding Pain, Interpretation and Philosophy and had been written over 30 years ago. I think when I was about 12 years old. And I was surprised. And I did a bit of digging. And it turns out that now living in Arlington, Virginia, is another doctor, Mitchell T. Smolkin, a retired internist who, in his life, also has had a deep fascination and interest in the human being's struggle to deal with pain and how they do so through philosophy, religion, and how we contend with the often existential crises that painful events and physical symptom cause us in our lives. It was quite moving for me. It was another sign for me that what I'm interested in and the work that I'm doing is worthwhile. But I dug a little bit and contacted his son, and eventually his son put me in touch with him. And so on today's podcast, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Mitchell Smolkin. And we both found this quite charming, and neither of us know of any other Mitchell Smolkin in the world. <laughs> and he makes the charming remark that the Smolkin family business seems to be pain, and I have actually found others. And we all seem to come from an area in Belarus, either called Gomel or Homel, 
but we haven't been able to determine how exactly we are related. But as you'll probably realize, the last name Smolkin is not that common. Something that we touch on in today's podcast, which kind of surprised me with the directness that Mitchell addressed it, which you heard in the opening of today's podcast, has to do with the placebo effect. Placebo comes from the Latin, I shall be acceptable or pleasing, and refers to what they try to rule out with the scientific method, which is a kind of non-organic cause and effect when it comes to treatment, so that we can replicate and disseminate tools and methodologies and medication that will have a similar effect across the board. But when I was having a chance to read over my summer vacation, I was floored as I was connecting with different developments, such as the ways that neurofeedback has now become quite a popular tool in psychology. And once again, I was confronted with this notion that the personality, passion, commitment, patience, the idiosyncratic nature of the doctor, of the medicine man or medicine person, that even in these revolutionary new treatments, there again is this criticism that is leveled from many corners of the scientific community, which is, well, there isn't enough evidence that this actually works. And yet for people who practice this, the anecdotal evidence from their practice, their clinical experiences overwhelmingly support the outcomes that they see every day with people. And I remember shaking my head because every time that I investigate a new area of the field, it seems to come down to the power of the human relationship. And I always say, and you've probably heard me say it on this podcast before, that so much of what we see and think about as mental illness or difficulties in living are relational. We spend hundreds and thousands of hours thinking about, talking about, complaining about, or recognizing our, our parents and aunts and uncles and teachers and coaches, children, spouses. You know, the, these relationships occupy so much of the bandwidth in our life and in conversations and often very joyous ones, the things that people do for us, but also very often trying to solve the riddle of how others impact us and how others make us feel. And when it, when it comes down to human pathology, and this was something that I was engaging in again on my, on my summer break, so much of it stems from our developmental trajectories. So, you know, a child who is adopted into a, a family that is loving and has resources may fare a lot better than a child who is adopted and returned. 
back to the adoption agency, these fundamental developmental moments have a massive impact on the human organism over time. And I focus and dwell on this because it strikes me then that if we're going to make headway in terms of helping the human organism feel safe again or sometimes for the first time, it is going to have to happen in a relational context. And so I'm not surprised that as we search for new ways to treat individuals, groups, families, that we keep coming back to this notion of the placebo effect of how creating an environment for healing, as Mitchell points out, you know, the way that the white coat of the doctor can have an immediate healing effect on people. It can also have uh, the effect of making people very anxious. And we can talk about that on another podcast because there's some great research in terms of a subset of people that get very anxious when it comes to that kind of social relationship. But today I wanted, just before we jump into the interview, to just touch a little bit on, on this idea of placebo. And it seems to have initially come out in the late 18th century, the first time it was used in the context of a scientific investigation. And it came out of a commission in, in France, actually, which was trying to investigate the outcomes of uh, Dr. Anton Mesmer's work, who I've talked briefly about before. That's where the word to mesmerize or to be mesmerized, comes from. Anton Mesmer was a physician who traveled around Western Europe in the 18th century and worked with animal magnetism, which had some connection to celestial bodies and the ways that you could affect fluids in the human being and re rearrange things to heal from all kinds of disorders. And it was a very public exercise. And essentially, they established a, a commission to try to determine if the results of his treatment were real. And people as famous as Benjamin Franklin was involved on this commission. Uh, Franklin actually was an expert in mesmerism and animal magnetism. So it was extremely popular amongst aristocracy and the bourgeoisie, and people flocked to Mesmer to heal all kinds of ailments in their, in their lives. And as a result of these sort of placebo-controlled blind trials, the, the commissioners concluded that Mesmer's fluid had no existence, and actually that it was imagination, imitation, and touch uh, that were the the true causes of the observed effects in the mesmeric salon, which is fascinating. And this is where placebo entered into the conversation, that there was this placebo effect. There was this, I guess, desire in the patient to get better and the commitment and passion of the doctor affected and brought out this, this innate desire, which actually makes sense if we think about the neurochemistry of healing, that if something can fundamentally motivate somebody, 
that physiologically they're going to feel better in a sense, because that is often what so many of the drugs that are, are targeting neurophysiological symptoms such as dopamine and serotonin and neuropronephrine. This is what we don't necessarily connect to on an intellectual level in our bodies, but when you you know, have a glass of wine or eat some really good chocolate. You know, this is these are the effects that are going on in our brain that all of a sudden lift our spirits. So no wonder if we're in an environment where somebody is is caring very deeply about us, we will feel better. And it is very real. There was a very interesting study that was done actually in Toronto at at an addictions clinic, and they compared the results of volunteers with no specialized training aside from what they got on site and the senior clinicians. And, and they found that the, the volunteers uh, who were dealing with uh, people with addictions had the same, if not better, results in helping people than the senior clinicians. And I, and I can relate to that. I, I remember that when I first started in the field and I was wet behind the ears, I would often bend over backwards for people. And as I got older and built a family and built a busier practice, I found that, you know, I had to start putting in certain boundaries and would be less willing at times to sort of break the frame, if you will, which I don't know has always served me in certain cases, because sometimes the need, you know, is so important that the, the human relationship needs to really exist in a very real and honest way. The other study that I wanted to just touch on today, which has permeated the field of psychotherapy for many years, and where I want to sort of caution us when we learn about new trends or psychological theories, is that we, we constantly feel like we are reinventing the wheel. I guess it's just not as exciting when we have an outcome it's not as exciting to realize that what's happening perhaps is something that has been happening for centuries, if not millennia. It's much more exciting and perhaps a bit of an archetypal dance to think that we've somehow discovered something. I mean, that's just much more thrilling and sexy than, than to realize that there's quite a history for what it, the, the phenomena that we are observing. So if we think about what they discovered in the 18th century, which I'm sure had existed for many more years, Aristotle wrote a lot about the power of relationship as well and its, its ability to transform. But then what happened in the 20th century, and I take this quote from, from Wikipedia, that the dodo bird verdict was terminology that was coined by Saul Rosenzweig in 1936 to illustrate the notion that all therapies are equally effective. And Rosenzweig borrowed the phrase from Lewis Carroll's uh, book, Alice in Wonderland, where there are a number of characters who become wet, and in order to dry themselves, the, the dodo bird decided to issue a competition. Everyone was to run around the lake until they were dry, but nobody cared to measure how far each person had run, nor how long. And so when they asked the dodo uh, who had won, he thought long and hard, and then he said, quote, everyone has won and all must have prizes. And so in the case of psychotherapies, 
Rosenzweig argued that common factors were more important than specific technical differences. So that on the sort of dodo bird's conjecture, all therapies are winners. They all produce equally effective outcomes. And this has permeated how we think about psychotherapy and the incredible focus that there is on the therapeutic alliance. There's a lot of theory that really focuses on how, in some ways, it's the the reparenting of the human nervous system. Mitchell, in our interview today, talks about how people would often come into his practice uh, with you know, these incredible existential crises when they were having to deal with incredible hardship and how it was impacting their belief in God, their religious convictions, their philosophies about life. And I asked him, and I was actually surprised how much time he could take with them to explore this. And he talks about how as his practice went on, he made more and more time to sit and talk to people. What one of the writers who influenced me quite a bit, her name is Jean Knox. She's now retired, but she worked in England for many, many years. And in her writing, she talked about how it really was the sort of internal working model of the therapist, how the therapist is managing their own intense emotions, how the therapist is is feeding back what they hear from the patient, the holding, the containment that is going on, that has a huge impact on the therapy. So there's a kind of osmosis in a way, you know, this kind of repetition where you walk into the therapist's office and the ways that your pain and your discontent are dealt with internally, you know, the way that it is fed back through mirror neurons that you're sensing in the therapist's whole being, that that has an incredible effect on changing the internal working model of the patient and vice versa, right? Carl Jung talked a great deal about the sort of co-creation in therapy. And so we have to let ourselves be affected in all relationships in our lives. If you've been paying attention to my talks on parenting, this this actually almost sounds like the same thing. You know, the parent has to have a kind of flexibility in their own internal working models. Otherwise, if they're responding to situations in a rigid and reactive way, that is ultimately how the, the child is going to then react to stimulation in their own lives. And no wonder then that, that there can be a sort of cascade of of issues in, in social situations like school or eventually work. And so I'm, uh, I was very touched and, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Mitchell, never mind the fact that, that there's this, yeah, it was somewhat spiritual for me, to be honest. It, it was emotional and I felt a certain calm in our conversation and a different kind of pace with the two of us just sitting with some of these questions of how we contend with suffering. And what an amazing thing that the two of us who have never met and share the exact same name have spent a great deal of our professional lives thinking about these issues. And my final comment will be something that I perhaps gleaned from my conversation with him was 
ultimately the humility that we all have to bring to these issues in our lives. And sometimes all we can do is sit with somebody and marvel at the awesomeness of the questions that uh, these kinds of uh, crevices in our lives provoke in us. Which is, I know for me, not, not easy to do sometimes when there is such a hunger uh, for answers, for peace of mind, which of course uh, I, I long for too. I, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, wherever you are, I'm, I'm wishing you well. As usual, please support the podcast if you can. It's a labor of love. If you go to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's uh, a link there to PayPal. If you feel like donating, uh, I'd be very appreciative. I have a, a lovely group of people who support this and bring this to you every week. But if that's not within your means, I completely understand. And I hope you'll rate it and review it and share it with your friends. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mitchell T. Smolkin. So I uh, have the great pleasure of welcoming Mitchell Smolkin to the podcast today. And no, this is not a solo podcast. This is with another Mitchell Smolkin, and I think the only other Mitchell Smolkin that I know of uh, in existence. I don't know you if you, Mitchell, know of any other men or people by the same name. I certainly don't. <laughs> well, I came across your name, I think, because at some point... A Librius or some online academic portal told me that I've been referenced X amount of times <laughs> in works, and then it said Dr. Mitchell Smolkin, and I was a bit confused. And then I Googled and realized that, I don't think I knew at the time, but that you're a physician, an internist, now retired. And I wrote initially to your son. I think it was his email that I found online and he put us in touch. And we had a chance earlier this week to get to know each other a little bit. And here we are. Uh, so welcome Mitchell Smolkin to the Dignity of Suffering podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Mitchell Smolkin. <laughs> and I promise to our listeners we won't go on like this for too long, but it's... Uh... Yeah, it was quite charming. And then the whole reason that I came across your name was because I had been doing some some research online in, in the creation of this podcast and having to plug myself into various social media outlets. And then I came across the fact that you'd written a book called uh, Understanding Pain, Interpretation and Philosophy. And I was curious, but also a little bit spooked. <laughs> that us having the same name, we're coming at something not entirely from different angles, because this podcast really is looking at the breadth of how we endure and confront suffering. And having gone through your text, it seems that at some point in your life, which we'll get into, you also had the same inclination to dive deeper and understand how people deal with pain. So thank you for coming on. But perhaps before we jump in, I mean, maybe you could tell me a bit about your career. You worked as an as an internist. Maybe you could help the listeners understand 
what you did for many years and how that's different from being perhaps a, a physician, just so people understand maybe the scope of your, uh, of your medical career? Well, first, I'd like to say that it seems like the Anheuser-Busch family, the family business is beer and the Smolton <laughs> family, it seems to be pain, unfortunately. But I got into uh, medicine for a good reason and a bad reason. The bad reason was that when I, it was time to pick what I was going to be when I grew up, the Vietnam War was going on. And I could have been either a clergyman or a dentist or a doctor. So I became a doctor. That was one reason. The other reason, the better reason, is that I've always been interested in the situation that mankind finds him or herself in. And I studied psychology in college. and. A number of years after I got my medical degree, I got a master's in philosophy. And the medicine degree also was an effort to understand what it means to be a person. What situation do we find ourselves in when we emerge into the world? And practicing medicine for 40 years, most of it all clinical. I intensified my knowledge of what it's like to be in various bad situations as a human. A human can be fine and happy and nothing happens to them and they don't question anything. But when they're faced with a serious medical problem or death, then they start to think about what it means to be human. So that's what I got into. I had been in the public health for a few years at the CDC, but most of the time in medicine, I practiced on sick people, basically. And on the sick people also, yes, sick people with severe illnesses and also the worried will. And most of humanity falls into either one of those two groups. Yeah, that's congruent with a great deal of my practice as well. And in fact, I think what strikes me very often are people that uh, at a very young age, uh, whether it's the loss of, of a mother or father at quite a young age or just coming into a very horrible situation there there seems to be a real difference in how people develop whether it's the sort of proverbial midlife crisis when things have been going on quite well and then somebody faces uh some kind of intense catastrophe versus uh, the catastrophe kind of defining uh, their their life from a young age it's always interested me clinically in terms of how that how the human being develops in those environments and so I think a lot about, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the notion of diathesis stress or, or the epigenetics of catastrophe, but that resonates with me a lot. And, and to go back to your earlier comment, which I didn't dwell on a lot, I realized the Smolkin family business of pain. <laughs> uh, I've mentioned previously on this podcast that 
yeah, the, the reason I guess uh, it reverberated inside of me when when I found that this had been a main interest in your life is that the Smolkins, at least in Canada, there had been already a sense uh, that pain and suffering, not to distinguish the, the family from any other family, but they had done a study on the Smolkin family in Ottawa many years ago because there had been uh, a history of, of suicide amongst a number of people. And so I, we don't know, we talked about this, we don't know how and if we're related, but we do know that we we both come from somewhere in Belarus and most likely uh, Homel, so there's a very good chance. On that note, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I guess there is this more kind of ethereal quality of pain versus, like you said, dealing with people who were, you know, organically sick, dealing with people who were, you know, and I, and I wondered in considering the fact that you went back to do your master's after medical school, how you bridged your philosophical interests with the sort of day-to-day clinical work of dealing with people who are physically ill. How did those two come together? Did you find yourself dealing a lot with the existential issues of pain with patients? Was that in equal measure a part of your work? I think that it became obvious that each person who was faced with a health crisis had some kind of philosophical background that they had emerged from, and they used that background to help them try to understand what was happening to them. A lot of people were had a religious background of the, as simplistic as it still sounds, a lot of people believe that the good are protected and the bad suffer. And somehow if someone suffers, they deserved it in some way. They were faced, were faced with a God that is uh, all-powerful for most people and also good, yet there's all this pain and evil in the world that seems to hit people regardless of whether they are personally living a just life or not. So most people who were faced with the circumstance went back to their religious training and they could come up with a reason uh, they were looking for what had I done wrong. And that had to be gotten over. That had to be faced and gotten over that they hadn't done anything wrong or at least not in a way that is provable, and that these things just happen. And the randomness of it, while I feel is true, they didn't often feel was true. And these were ongoing conversations that you would have with your patients? This is, they would open up with you about these feelings of, of being responsible in some ways for their affliction? Is that They would open up with you if you sat and listened. That was the main key. If you put your hand on the doorknob and left the room as soon as you told them they had pancreatic cancer, they didn't open up. But if you gave them the indication that they you were willing to talk, they would talk. And often it led to a meaningful conversation and they felt better after the conversation was over. Even though I didn't have the answer for them, I allowed them to ask the questions. Did you have the the time to spend with them, because I, 
I'm Canadian and you're in the United States and we have very different healthcare systems. But one thing I think that's shared in, in most parts of the world is the pressure on physicians uh, often to see many patients. And that's one of the criticisms that's often leveled against uh, appointments that are of a, of a symptomatic nature. That, that, but it, so, it sounds like, and I'm just curious if, if you've seen the medical profession change in that regard, or if if you felt like you had the, the liberty to spend time with people in that regard, or if you feel like that's ubiquitous among your colleagues. Rushing from room to room is certainly symptomatic of American healthcare. There wasn't enough time, but you would try, I would try at least to, when it was a matter of such urgency, I would make the time and I'd be late for the next patient and try to make it up in the course of the day. Maybe the, the routine high blood pressure check got short shrift because I was talking to somebody at greater length. So you have to budget your time. Hmm. It is a problem. In the last few years of my practice, I mostly just talked to people and I would refer them to other people. I was cutting back on the stress of my life. And I enjoyed that time because I was there for them. It was a half hour that I could answer anything they wanted to or talk about anything they wanted to. It was their dime, so to speak. <laughs> I trained with a, a psychiatrist in, in Canada who uh, works in London, Ontario. And after some of our psychology seminars, he would, uh, you know, when we were socializing, he had a huge, deep interest in astrology. <laughs> and and he would ask you your birthday, and then he had this photographic memory. We just, you know, basically draw this chart, and and I think he also worked in forensic psychology, and and I just found that tension in him amazing, and asked him at some point whether any of this could ever be integrated into his work, and of course, uh, uh, you know, of course they would laugh him out of the hospital. And, and I worked in major psychiatric disorders as well, coming from a originally from a from a psychoanalytic background. And it was very humbling in many ways to be in that environment, never mind the amount of time you have with people, but also, as you said, the the worried well, you know, when it comes to psyches that are really broken, you know, the kind of work that we do in, in psychology really, at least as far as I could tell, could, couldn't take place. But I love what you said, that when you listen to people, uh, something else takes over. And I'm not surprised that given your interests... That over time, uh, it sounds like it became more fulfilling to have the time with people to really engage with them. Definitely. And what would you, I mean, I have a bit of a luxury because people don't really come to me for physical symptomology. I, I, I mean, they, they do to an extent, but by the time they reach my door, something in them has made them question that maybe there's another or an additional reason for their suffering. But I guess I just, you know, I just wonder, you know, one moment when I was in the emergency room and, and we were assessing a patient who uh, he'd been brought in by the police and he, he'd been making threats online. And uh, at some point when we were doing a history, he quipped that his mother was a Holocaust survivor and 
my colleague's next question after he acknowledged that was, and, and how's your appetite and how are you sleeping? <laughs> and, and I snuck back in the room after uh, and sat with him. And it turns out that it had been an SS officer who had, who had ended up marrying his mother. And I just, I, I guess I just wonder how you would deal with situations where, or if you realized, given your interest in the philosophy of pain, if it was clear to you at times that physical pain was of an existential or, or psychic nature. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious from a physician's perspective, given partially my bias, but uh, if you ever found yourself uh, stuck in that regard, or, or if it was clear to you that something was not organic. I think it's useful <clears throat> for psychotherapists to realize that before they come to your office, they've usually been to mine and they think their belly hurts or their head hurts or whatever they come in with. Only a small percentage of them will allow themselves to be referred to a therapist unfortunately, because they could use it very much, and it's very helpful. But a lot of the people I had to deal with, because I was the only one there, there wasn't a convenient way to shuttle them off to somebody who was actually qualified to deal with these things. So we end up dealing with them with uh, a regular primary care doctor with with medicine and talk and whatever we can do it sounds like your colleague he might have just screamed and ran out of the room because that's what he did behaviorally and he was a mental health person that should have listened and when there's a point in the conversation that says it's time to listen this person is disclosing you better do it you better not shut them off. Yeah, I had, uh, and I'm sure you do too. I, I, I had a lot of respect for my colleagues who would spend 30, 40 years in an environment like the emergency room with all of the politics and the way I was trained was, was really about, it was about numbers and how long they were kept under emergency medicine before they were transferred to psychiatry. And it was, these were hot potatoes in the, vis-a-vis -vis funding. And so we were trained to try to, you know, push back if they were referred to psychiatry too soon or get them, you know, out of, uh, off the clock as soon as possible. And, and I, 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 to be honest, for, for those that spent that long in that environment, I'll, I couldn't do it. I bow down to them because I personally need to have conversations and, uh, and I'm sure you have a million stories like this, but what one was the this man that came in that was completely comatose and we couldn't do an assessment of him. And we asked if he was hungry and we put a sandwich near him. We saw that as soon as we left the room, I saw the corner of my eye that he just started eating, but he wouldn't do it in front of us. He wouldn't move in front of us. He didn't answer any of our questions. And so I, I went in and I got down on my knees at his eye level and I said, something, something scares you about, about being here, doesn't it? The lights and, and within 10 minutes, we were laughing and he was talking about feeling excluded as a child. <laughs> and, and when the head of psychiatry came down, who also I love and thinks he's a, a great physician, but, you know, he, he turned the lights on. He said, sit up and, and the man stopped speaking. And the next question that my colleague asked him was, uh, do, you want, do you want an injection or do you want to take pills by the mouth? 
uh, and we walked out. And it, it kind of segues to a question that was in my mind because I, I finally was on vacation last week. As, as you know, I took some time off and I got a chance to read again, which was so great. And uh, I finished a book on neurofeedback, which was just, it was just fascinating and made a lot of sense. But something that was, that, that just hits me over and over again were these criticisms that were, that were being leveled at the, at the field and, and demands for, for more studies and can it be replicated and can a particular practitioner's style be taught because we have to rule out the, the placebo effect. And, and there was another comment that said, well, what if it's, you know, or, or rather, they 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 reaffirmed. This goes back to Aristotle, even that it, that the relationship accounts for so much of the healing process. And and I remember I was sitting on the plane and I shook my head and I said, "Well, well, yeah." I mean, I said they don't, they don't. I said they don't bemoan a, the coach of a, I don't know the team that wins the World Series, or they don't, you know, they don't all of a sudden try to replicate. I mean, he might mentor other coaches, but. I'm not sure if that analogy makes sense, and I'm curious about what you know what goes through you. But part of me said, "Well, why wouldn't we account for the idiosyncratic nature of the relationship? And does it really diminish or disprove the healing process? If, as you're pointing out, if you care to listen versus walking out the door, that is a tangible element in any healing process. Well, for most patients, a witch doctor is at least as good and perhaps better than an exposure to Western medicine. There you have somebody who's very well trained at transmitting the most placebo effect. Perhaps there are other effects I don't know about too, but certainly a lot of it is the presentation with the, the drums and the sweat baths and the whatever and the as we know, even with antidepressants, the placebo group does very well. You have about a 30% improvement with placebo and maybe a 40 to 45% improvement with active antidepressants. So you got to use that placebo. The placebo is the relationship and it's gotten a bad name. But if the relationship makes people feel so much better, use it. So I agree with you. How popular was that idea or is that idea? Again, I'm a, I'm a bit, it's uh, not, not startling to hear you say that, given that I read your, your book and it, it fits for me. <laughs> but how popular was that idea when you were working? I don't know, remember discussing it with a room full of doctors. It wasn't something I brought up in the doctor's lounge at the hospital generally. If I had... Some of the doctors would have accepted it, and some would think that's quackism. Certainly, it's clear there was an article just recently that patients seem to feel better if you have a white coat on than if you were a casually dressed doctor. Well, that's, that's not exactly wearing a bone through your nose and coming in like a witch doctor, but it's uh, the same kind of thing. It's the the trappings of a healer. Yeah, there's an incredible process. I mean, I always say that so many of our wounds are developmental or are relational. You know, so much of the way the the way human physiology responds to abandonment or stress occurs through relationship. And so 
I don't know when it comes. And again, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is that your, your relationships with patients over years, I'm sure, you know, there's an intimacy that develops and then people come to you, you have the rug pulled out from underneath them and what they believed uh, their entire lives. And if you give them the time to talk about that, uh, there can be a way for that to metamorphosize in, in some way to, to, yeah, to deal with. You know, I speak about my grandfather some in my life in part because I think that's how I came to this field. And he, he had a very hard time, I know, going to, to synagogue after the war uh, since his whole family was gone. And uh, it, it eventually became a refuge for him again. And I just, since you wrote this lovely book, <laughs> I, and you quote Elie Wiesel at the end, or at least you reference him, I'd love to read a part of your book, if if you'll allow me, uh, when you open up a little bit about where you've come to after all these years in your own perspective on on suffering. And you write, quote, I have come to accept my vacillations of disposition. On some days, I am a, a limited God believer who worships him in a limited manner. This God suffers with the victims of pain, seeking to strengthen them in their struggle against evil. I always root for the success of this divine human partnership while always recognizing that its chances for failure are immense. On many other occasions, I am an angry atheist, and Camus becomes my patron saint. I, too, reject ideology, renounce murder, and try to assist a suffering humanity in its futile battle against the bleakness of the universe. Happily for me, the positions of limited God theologists and Camus rebels can mesh harmoniously in a campaign to expunge the world's hate and replace it with love. To me, the most aesthetically pleasing are the views of Elie Wiesel, who God wrestles in every work that he writes. He finds God guilty in a formal trial, but will not abandon his belief in him, nor will he submit to God's enemies, and in brackets referencing the work, the trial of God. Wiesel lives on the razor's edge of his own paradox, shifting his weight cautiously so that he does not fall either to one side or the other of his dilemma. Often, too often, I simply despair of the immensity of the problem of pain and anesthetize myself, like so many of our time, by sitting in front of a television. Someone in, in my practice actually mentioned that today as their go-to comfort, how they survived their childhood. That was an editorializing on my part. <laughs> Back to your work. Most days, though, to poorly uh, paraphrase Job, I seek to depart from evil, and I worry about God a lot. It's very moving what you wrote. It seems that you came to a place to try to hold some kind of tension in, in the immensity of, of sitting with people. And I wonder, was that an evolution over your career to try to sit and hold that, hold that tension? Unless you accept the, the viewpoint of a, a devout skeptic and think that life is totally meaningless. Einstein said that that would make you 
it almost disqualifies you from life if you think life is totally meaningless. So if I was going to adopt a meaning, it would have to mediate between these conflicting tensions, the tension of the idea of a just and loving omnipotent God and the fact that there is no God and it's solidarity with your fellow man that provides the meaning. So I think there is a tension if you accept meaning and do not wish to choose that life is meaningless and totally absurd. Camus says that life is absurd, but then he says you can create your own meaning and solidarity with other humans and try to lessen pain and increase love, but there, there is the tension uh, of a meaningless universe that you have to inject meaning in, or a sadistic God that somehow could prevent evil but chooses not to. And even if you can argue that a lot of people need to be shaken and depart from their evil ways, and perhaps they ate the apple and have original sin. What does that have to do with all the children that are tortured in the world? There were one million Jewish children that were killed in the Holocaust, or all the, uh, the children that go to bed without enough food in the United States and other third world countries, first world countries. There's a lot to pull you apart. Is the world basically evil? Or what is our place in it? What are we trying to do? What is our devotion to? If we're a creature of God, then what does God want us to do? And if we're not a creature of God, then how do we create meaning in a seemingly random and often very painful universe. Yeah, I know <laughs> as much as I, I love to delve into theories, and it was one of the, the criticisms during my, my defense, actually, was that I can get into my head and dance around too much. <laughs> but as I get older and people walk through my door, I find myself more often than not, as you so beautifully said doing my best to sit in solidarity with the questions rather than <laughs> succumbing to the pressure to find answers. I wonder if it's okay if I ask you how how that has maybe changed in you as you've gotten older or if you noticed how that changed throughout your career. I'm just curious if uh, you have a sense of... of... My sister-in-law recently asked me, well, do you still think the way you thought when you wrote that book? And I said, yeah, pretty much so. How long ago was it, Mitchell? How long ago was the book? I could check, but when? I think it was 89. It's a long time ago in the ancient, uh, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. It was 89. I just looked at the book. I'm waiting for the movie to come out, but that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I'll uh, see if there's a smoke in that produces... Uh... Films on on suffering. Let's see. Let's 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 go on a. I think by the time I wrote the book, which was a little over thirty years ago now, 
I haven't changed that much in my orientation, but I went through a lot of work prior to that to, to fix it in my mind which way I was going and what meaning would consist of for me. So no, I haven't changed that much. Uh, I had already practiced for oh about 12 years or 14 years before I wrote the book. So I had seen my fair share of things. In your early training, you often get uh, covered with pain and horror. If you practice in a, a big urban setting in a county hospital, you've pretty well seen a lot of things by the second week there. The children and other people coming on all shot up and the suicides and the the messes. So I had a lot of materials to work with by then. Mm -hmm. You and I both live sort of in the backdrop of the Holocaust, where we got a dose of it growing up and realized that the world could depart from being friendly very easily. That was precisely what was on, on my mind. You know, I spent, in part because psychoanalysis uh, originally was my goal, and you can't train until you're well into your 30s. I spent my early career going into the poetry of, of the Holocaust, and it was actually uh, a poet's uh, work, Avram Sutzkever, that helped me put some language to, to my own grandfather's uh, suffering. That's always there for me in my work, too, so that, that makes a lot of sense. I've been writing about this this week that I think there's a danger in trying to yeah normalize or average out people's suffering in the sense that there's there's a great power in people remembering their stories. Uh, that's not just a, a Jewish idea per se. I think that's one of the powers of of literature and really that, that's why I loved your book so much. To be honest, I was and I'm not just saying that I was. I don't know what to expect. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of interesting because uh, I, I shared this story with you at the end of our first video call, and we met of of when I found my great uncle's book and had it shipped <laughs> all the way to Vilnius and and cracked it open, and and then here I found Mitchell Smolkin's book and had it shipped. It took like took much longer to get your book than it did. <laughs> My great uncle's book all the way to Vilnius. I think it took a good five weeks, partially because of the pandemic. And uh, to open and see such a, a thoughtful and dense and rich explication of, of the history of pain, it's very touching. I, I can't wait to read it again. And, and I'm really glad you took the time to come on and speak to me about this. It was my pleasure. The family business is thriving. <laughs> Well, I wish you well, and I'm I'm particularly, yeah. You settled something in me when you opened up about the 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 nature of of relationship, because uh, th there are times in my work where I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> and when I was a bit self depreciating uh, a couple of weeks ago. One of my patients said something like, "Well, if I didn't, if I wasn't interested in what you had to say, I wouldn't keep coming back." <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for for deepening our relationship a bit here, and I look forward to continuing to stay in touch. That's wonderful. Be well. Thank you, Mitchell Smolkin. 
Goodbye, Mitchell Smolkin. Well, there you have it. Two Mitchell Smolkins uh, finding each other over a hundred years after their respective Smolkin families left most probably the same town in Belarus and finding each other on the web nonetheless and connecting around a mutual interest in how we contend with our pain and suffering. I was surprised, although in retrospect, it makes complete sense Mitchell's humanistic approach to medicine, his clear and concise way of talking about how the relationship and confronting suffering in a down-to-earth and empathetic way has so much effect and power on the human being. We don't question when exceptional people such as the great coaches of sport teams or iconoclasts who bring new ideas. We don't question often the, the power of, of their abilities, and we, we may study how they win championships or how they invent new products or ideas, but really the idea of replicating that in some ways is a bit foolhardy. Often it's the individual spirit one's commitment, one's passion for what they do that is infectious and inspires us. And I love the fact that in our conversation, we, we can't diminish that or reduce it to the sum of its parts. That just seems like something that will persist until the end of time. Thank you for joining us, the Mitchells, today. I wish you all the best. Please subscribe. If you like it, please tell your friends. It helps a lot to spread the word. And you can write a review on Apple, which also helps a great deal. Until the next time, I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>